Well, kia ora koutou katoa, everyone, and welcome to the Weekly Hoon. I'm Bernard Hickey from the Kaka, and I'm here in a very echoey room in Parliament with one of the highest ceilings around and um, one of the highest earthquake ratings. Thank you very much to the taxpayers in New Zealand for, uh, for doing all that work to keep it going. And in a, um, a, a luxury, a, a luxury a mobile no, no, no. on his way to, to Stansted Airport, we've got co-host Peter Bale. Peter, how are you? Good morning, Bernard. How are you? I'm, I'm very good, thank you. I just decided that I could, in fact, be the, be the other person to do the, do the kaka from the car, as it were. Uh, exactly. Yes. No, a few weeks ago, yeah. that was me. There's, there's, the there's, there's a precedent the for this. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I'm going yeah. to have to get one of those phones with a, one of those uh, steady cams with a, with a gimbal on it. So I hope I don't make everybody seasick. Uh, no, that's all right. We're enjoying the scenery in the background there. Um, you're, you're on the um, internal link road on the way to Stansted, Stansted uh, on the other I side am. of the world, which is great. I am, yes. And um, plenty of action on your side of the world uh, this week. Um, uh, but before we do that, I thought we'd um, just give everyone a heads up on our special guests this week. It, it is uh, Rodney Jones, who's going to join us at about quarter past five. Uh, Rodney is an independent economist with Wigram Capital and uh, has been watching the global economy from China, from New Zealand, from all over the world for 20 or 30 years and is a fantastic observer of what's happening with the markets, interest rates, central banks, all of that, plenty of action this week. And then from 5.30 to 5.45, we have Janine Granger, who is the CEO of Easy Crypto, which is New Zealand's biggest and uh, most successful uh, cryptocurrency exchange and plenty of action this week with the big slump in Bitcoin to 20,000 US dollars. Um, we've seen the collapse uh, last week of um, one of the, uh, the stable coins, not so stable coin as it turned out, and uh, this week some problems with uh, Binance. So we'll talk to Jenny about that. But Peter, um, tell us what you're seeing from your side of the world on what's happening with Russia and Ukraine, and in particular, Alexei Navalny. Yeah, well, I, I led my spin-off thing this week with this, just because of, you know, sometimes, I think I told you, Bernard, a few, a while ago, I was at a thing where a woman from a, a Russian website called Medusa said, if you can imagine the most cynical person in the world and then double it, that's Putin. And uh, Alexei Navalny, you know, the guy who was, who had Novichok put in his underpants and the seams of his underpants and who then had the balls, literally still had the balls, to ring up the guy who put the Novichok in his underpants and pretend to be his commanding officer to find out exactly how he put it in his underpants, um, has now been moved from, from uh, the existing hellhole, gulag hellhole that he was in to, a, to an even worse gulag hellhole. And... Um, uh, uh, what, what really struck me was Dmitry Peskov, the spokesman for Putin, who was very nearly as cynical as Putin is. I'm just going to go into a tunnel actually in a second, so um, that's all I'll right. Be, yeah. If we, if and, we um, lose you, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll talk about it. I had no idea yeah, about yeah. the Novichok and the Andes story. Oh, yeah, what no, a, a man. It was, it was in the seams of the, and if you, I, I was listening the other day actually to the, so anyway, he's been moved to an even worse hell, hell hole. And what, what it, and, and Dmitry Peskov said something like, no, we don't know where he is and nor do we care. You know, we don't, we don't track his health. But of course, the, the point of this is, you know, you're, you're the, the president of the, of, the, of uh, I, I nearly said the Soviet Union then, which is pretty much what it's, what it's like. Um, and, you know, you, this guy's not even elected, an, an elected member of the Duma. But you're fear, fearful of him so much that you have an extra 10 years added to his sentence. And you send him off to some dark and scary part of the, of the gulag, which, as you know, is one of my, one of my favorite subjects. But um, we, we could actually, my life sometimes does feel like a day in the life of Ivan Denisovich, which, if nobody's read it, the Solzhenitsyn short story, really, about the day in the life of Ivan Denisovich is one of, the, it's, it's, it's a novel, of course, but it's, um, quite an extraordinary description of what life in the gulag is like and as far as far as one can tell it's not a hell of a lot different now yeah and the stories we're hearing about people who have been taken out of um eastern and southern ukraine and across the border into russia that's right are fairly are fairly awful and, and um, sent off and sent off to kazakhstan and tatarstan and 
places like that. I mean, this is the, the, the Stalin, the Stalin-like characteristics of Putin really are quite extraordinary. The language is very similar. The, the behavior is weirdly, weirdly similar. Um, and of course, what's happening in Ukraine, if we address that a little bit, Bernard, is uh, we're getting into one of these frozen conflicts where, um, you know, the Russians have effectively retaken or just secured, if you like, their position in Donetsk and Luhansk in the, in the Donbass region. So all of those deaths, you know, 30, 35,000 losses, all of those tank losses and everything, and we're back to the to something like, with the exception of Mariupol and the fact that they now have a land corridor down to the Crimea, we've got this weird and difficult stasis, and the Ukrainians would appear to be losing uh, at least 100 soldiers killed per day, uh, and they're not getting enough. And I, I was just to absolutely, I mean, I know our podcast is the best podcast, but there was a very, very good one from a guy called John Sweeney, um, which I may have recommended before. Um, and in it, a, uh, a strategic analyst uh, was talking about how Germany in particular is finding this extremely difficult. They talk about sending weapons, but they're not really sending weapons. We're not really, we, sorry, the West, is not really giving Ukraine the full means it needs to, to defend itself and to um, push back this aggression. Yeah, and um, with um, Vladimir Putin looking sort of comfortable in a way, he's starting to apply real pressure to the West now. He's squeezing the gas off for Germany and for Italy. And there's, you know, the, the West isn't powering those long-range uh, missiles and artillery in there yet. You know, he's winning a few things here and there. You picked up on a really fascinating uh, exchange where um, it was very clear that Putin saw himself as a type of czar, even more so than Stalin. Well, well it, it, as you know, Bernard, I, I align myself with Peter the Great for various reasons. <laughs> Although I think, of my, I think of myself sometimes as, you know, Pedro the barely adequate rather than Peter the Great. But um, yeah, he was comparing himself to Peter the Great and the Battle of Poltavo in uh, in the 18th century, where um, Peter the Great invaded Sweden, and as Putin said, took it back. And what's interesting about this party is, and I'm, I'm, I think I've mentioned to you, I'm reading a wonderful book at the moment called Putin's, I mean, not literally at the moment, because I even I'm not a woman, so I can't multitask, but um, Putin's People is a fantastic book by a Financial Times and Reuters journalist called Catherine Belton. And, um, you know, Putin is a student of history. But a little bit like me, he's a very late student of history. He's an autodidact. And he tends to pick up some pretty distorted and weird versions of history. And one of his lines this week was that Peter the Great didn't invade Sweden. He just took it back. And, you know, if you're Sweden and thinking about joining NATO, you'd be trying to join a double click, which, of course, they are. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's, um, it's pretty blatant what Putin's up to. Uh, and what I'll do is I'll put a link uh, into the uh, comments um, to a particular TV series called The Great. Have you seen this? It's, um, I think it's one of those neon uh, HBO uh, type series. And it is the best, it's actually one of the best series I've seen in the last couple of years. It's all about um, Catherine the Great who yeah. uh, effectively, as a teenager, married into the Russian royal family and then, within a few years, staged a coup to get rid of her husband and take over the top Yeah, role. Well, I, th and, I, think, I think from everything I've read, she had some very interesting appetites as well. Yes, yeah, and that's a fantastic series. It's, a, it's one of those um, uh, British-produced series uh, colorblind casting, just the, and and just the best scripts. Um, but anyway, yeah. it gives you a sense of the sort of. Obviously, it's a piece of fiction and produced by. I think it's also Brits. It, I I might be correct, and, and and we can stand corrected, but I'm I'm pretty sure it was um, Catherine for whom for whom the patent the, the word Potemkin was created was when you had these Potemkin villages, which were essentially sort of uh, hoardings that were put up as she was traveling around Russia so that you could see happy, smiling people with, you know, tight, nice, well-made well -made villages as opposed to the uh, serfs and the hovels that they were actually living in. Yeah, and um, speaking of um, shiny, happy people, um, not the case in America at the moment with the January the 6th hearings, I found them absolutely compelling. 
um, and just watching the coverage, but also how the likes of Stephen Colbert has pulled them together. Um, tell us about uh, what's what we're learning from these hearings. Well, I think we've learned a lot, Bernard. And one of the one of the oh yeah, good David Tripe is correcting me. Thank you very much about uh, reminding me who who Potemkin was. Thank you. Um, uh, yeah, I, I I think there's a bit of fatigue about about January the sixth, and. There shouldn't be, in a sense, because it is, you know, it was an incredible assault on democracy. And what the January 6th committee has done, particularly Liz Cheney, uh, is, who of course is a Republican, one of only two Republicans on the, on that committee, and she's being vilified for it. It's exposed the conspiracy behind it very, very effectively. You know, the the um, Donald Trump's attempts. Hello, Rodney. Hello. Donald Trump's attempts to. Uh, work with Eastman, the bonkers lawyer who was, who was helping him with this, the, um, his dismissal of the fears of Mike Pence. You know, this really comes out very, very strongly. So even if you feel you know what happened on January the 6th, this is, this is uncovering a level of conspiracy that I think isn't fully understood. And it will be very, I was listening yesterday to my third favorite podcast after this one, the John Sweeney one, uh, which is Preet Bharara, the um, uh, former attorney for the, for the Southern District of New York in, uh, interviewing uh, Holder, the former attorney general. Um, and the, one of the interesting aspects is whether Merrick Garland, Department of Justice, might actually use their January 6 evidence, which they've uh, requested, to launch a prosecution against Trump and other conspiracists in, um, in, in this conspiracy. Wow, from the actual Supreme Court launching a prosecution? Oh, sorry, from no, no, the no, Department no, no, of Justice. No, 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 Merrick Garland should be on the Supreme Court. I know, yeah, that's right. Because, of course, uh, Mitch, Mitch McConnell pre prevented him getting onto the Supreme Court. Which he would, you know. You know. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, and then we got, you've, got lovely, you've got lovely Rodney there. Yes, well, we want to welcome Rodney Jones uh, onto the panel from Wigram Capital. Rodney is an independent economist who keeps a close eye on global macroeconomic affairs and the financial markets. Rodney, fantastic to see you. Good to be back. Yeah. This week has been a cracker for news on the um, macroeconomic stage. Firstly, the US Federal Reserve realised it was behind the curve and needed to inform the markets before it whacked them with a 75 basis point rate hike. Um, appears to have done some strategic leaking to the Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg and the likes. And then we saw the market sell off. And then we got that 75 basis point rate hike from the Fed. What did you think of uh, action in Fed land on, and in global markets this week? Uh, it's, it, it's, you know, we're just watching, you know, you read about the 60s and 70s. And I, I spend my days staring at data from 1973-74 when I was in standard one and standard two, which I didn't spend much time looking at macro data. But um, it, it's just extraordinary. You have to go back to that time to try and kind of anchor what's going on now because of this high inflation. And, and Larry Summers has a nice paper out where he goes and restates the CPI um, with a couple of co-authors. And the US CPI, once you adjust it for changes, you know, it was back at that 1970s level. So, yeah, it's worth actually um, digging into that. I included that in one of my um, weekend reads uh, links, I think last week. What Summers very cleverly has done is worked out that in the 70s and early 80s, America's inflation measurement system effectively measured house prices as a proxy for the cost of home ownership. But after the 83, it moved to uh, an implied rental uh, um, measure, which effectively means that inflation was uh, actually higher than it um, would have been apples for apples now in the 70s, but also apples for apples, the Fed has to do much, much more to get the same impact as Volcker did in the 70s. Yeah, so inflation is actually lower. And what they also do is take out interest costs. We used to have that in our CPI, where we included mortgage interest rates in the CPI. Um, they've taken that out as well. So they've done a number of adjustments. But you don't actually need to read much detail. It's just like what we face now is a heck of a challenge compared to, say, 2007 or 1994. Um, and has, has the Fed done enough? Do you think they're far enough ahead of the curve or will they have to get to that uh, 
you know, uh, 3% or so uh, towards the end of the year, 3, 5, 3.5%. Well, you know, the, the, what gets us in tangles now is in a world of uncertainty, in a world of complexity, the forward guidance just ties central banks in knots. We've seen that here, where they make these commitments. You know, we see that in New Zealand with the funding for lending, where they make commitments three years forward. You know, maybe in the 2010s, where we had a stable world, you could make those sorts of commitments, but certainly not. You know, in a world where we can't predict what's going to happen next week, what makes central banks think that they have any clearer insight? And that was the case on Wednesday, or well, you know, Thursday morning. Here, you get up, you listen to Jerome Powell. He, 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 you know, and from the moment he started speaking, it was just a train wreck. I mean, if he had just put out the statement and gone away, he would have had seventy-five basis points, would have had a tightening of monetary conditions. But then he starts speaking, and he kind of undoes what he's just, whatever he's just said. So. You know, we're, we're in a bit of a tangle globally with central banks and the way they communicate and just the, their inability to cope with the new complexity. And now we have a whole generation of traders and investors who have never been in a period where interest rates have risen so fast, but also... Rodney, I'm, st I'm still here, um, so we can, <laughs> it's just kind of ironic that I'm in the car and Bernard's, Bernard's in Parliament, but I'm, I'm still here. So, uh, Rodney, um, I, I was really struck with this because when you talk about the volatility, I mean, we had Vietnam at that time, and when you were in Standard 2, you know, there was a lot going on, there was a lot going on there as well. Geopolitically, yes, the oil shocks, I mean... We, we had rising inflation in 1972, and then you had the Yom Kippur War, and we had a commodity boom. And New Zealand yeah. was doing well, and then we got hit by a commodity boom. Sorry about that, Rodney. I um I fell off the internet. Um, hopefully right. I'm back now. It's it's all right, Bernard. I I filled in filled in from the car. Oh. We're just talking about 1972-73, and which is interesting because that was the time of the third Labour government. And, you know, we, they tried many things. Um, you had MRP Freer, who was Minister of Trade, introduced price controls. And so you had maximum retail price. Do you remember that, Peter? You had kind of price controls. Jesus Christ. I mean, I'm about the same age as you, thank you very much. But, but unlike you, I was, in fact, pouring over macroeconomic data from at, oh, sure. at, Cornwall Park, at Cornwall Park School. Yeah, absolutely, I was. <laughs> and I don't know if you managed to touch on what's happening in Europe this week, where... Less than a week after saying they were going to get tough on inflation, they had to turn around and say, oh, by the way, tough on inflation for Europe, but if we need to intervene and, and print money to buy Italian and Spanish bonds, we, we will. What did you think of, of what's going on in Europe, Rodney? Uh, I just think that it's, we don't have, you know, our policy frameworks are not resilient, that we had economics once again went down that 1960s trap of thinking they could program economies and that these tools worked. I mean, economics made a shambles in the 1960s that led to the 70s. It made a shambles with financial regulation in the 2000s, and it's done it again. So I'm not sure if three strikes in that, you're out for the profession. But, um, you know, and the chaos in Europe just kind of conveys, conveys that. Do you think we're headed for some sort of um, new European crisis? Uh, yet or are we still a way away from the sort of dramas of 2009 and 2012? I think we're, we're, we're a way away. I mean, but, you know, it, it, the, the risks will come in the winter with the energy crisis if the Ukraine war goes on and sanctions in Russia. So there's a lot of instability yet to come out of Europe. But, you know, I don't spend my time kind of looking at, at Europe, so I'm not a, that informed observer. 
So um, the markets obviously had a rough week this week. We're now down 20 to 30% from the peak, um, which most people would describe as a bear market. Uh, do you think that the markets have really adjusted to what's now going to happen to the global economy and the US economy, and also adjusted to the real prospect of not only rising interest rates, but this week the Fed started selling these bonds back into the market that had been you know, buying back for 10 years. Yeah, well, the twist in the tail now is you're getting signs of economic weakness emerging. And, and you know, the capital markets are very important for the US economy. And so as the market goes down and you have the stress, you'll hear shortly, I think, from Janine on, on stress in crypto land, and you certainly have stress in private equity, um, you have stress in, in, in equity markets. So there's a fair amount of financial stress now across the United States. And does that start to drag on consumer spending and on confidence? And, and this, week, this week, we've seen the 30-year mortgage rate, which is the thing that most Americans use to buy a house. Unlike a one or two-year fixed rate here, they have um, effectively the government standing behind the mortgage market there, which means that people can take out 30-year fixed rates and they can sort of refinance, take equity out of their homes. That's up from 3% at the end of last year to 55 6% in some places this week. How, how is that flowing through to the American um, housing market and also what's going on with, um, uh, what's going on with the, the new builds market in America? Yeah, well, we're not, you know, clearly housing is starting to come under stress. You've seen lumber prices come off, but it's it's a really hard balance, I have to say. You just don't quite know yet. It's it's you 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 can see signs of rising stress, but you don't know how it's going to play out. Are we going to have resilience? We have the same thing in New Zealand. You can see signs of rising stress from mortgage rates. Um, we had that week one Q number, but two Q. We've kind of look like we're going to bounce back. So that's what I mean. It's, it's very tough to make predictions about tomorrow, let alone about one quarter ahead. Now, the second but largest... Rodney, Rodney, just, just, can I just interrupt for I mean, Rodney, when you said you don't follow Europe very much, so you don't feel like commenting, Bernard and I have never found anything we weren't able to comment on without having any, any information on it. Oh, you know, that's why that's, we're... That's a bit strong, <laughs> But isn't it fairly clear that we're going to be in a situation of 5 to 6% inflation? for the next two years minimum, that, we, that we're actually going to get also returns on our savings again for once. You know, this might be actually a beneficial period of inflation in a sense, as long as it doesn't get out of hand. Although I, I think I saw a figure this week that the UK is actually having something like 11% inflation. Well, it depends how we handle it. And it depends how political systems cope. You know, it is a cost of living crisis. You know, you can't trivialize it. It's a shock we would have hoped we avoided. Um, but the world we lived in, as Bernard's written about, of these ever lower interest rates and QE and radical monetary policy gave way to the housing bubble. So, you know, capitalist economies adapt. And, and, and I think they, this, that's, we're in the process of going through um, or adjust more correctly. And we're going through an adjustment to the prior policies. Now, the second largest economy in the world, um, China, has been a bit stop-start this year with these COVID elimination lockdowns, which are pretty brutal in Shanghai, and they've threatened to go off in uh, Beijing. But uh, what's your feeling about what's happening in China at the moment and whether uh, that has a good ending at all? <laughs> well... We struggled with this, with this in, in, in China. Um, as Peter knows, you both know I was the most hated man on New Zealand internet for a week last year for saying that elimination would fail. Um, and it's a, bit, it's a bit like that in China now. It's like, I call zero COVID a siren song. Once you've started on that journey, it's very hard to, to hop off because you just keep thinking, well, if next week we get better numbers, we'll be there. And, and so it's very enticing, particularly for political leadership. And, and so... China's kind of, it's, you know, what happened in New Zealand is nothing like that, because this is, you know, authoritarian and the implementation. But I just think it's about elimination. We, we got carried away with it, and the China's got completely carried away with it. So who knows? And, and, they, each, and I, did, I did a note to my clients called winning is losing. You know, they won this round. 
And that was the worst thing that could have happened. The sooner you learn to adjust and they're not vaccinating, Sinovac's actually, I've maligned Sinovac. I did it on with Kim Hill back in March, but it's actually turned out to be better than we expected with three and four doses. So they should just get on, vaccinate, and then open up and buy mRNA. So it's it's very political. It's about Xi Jinping, you know, cutting the country off from foreigners, from foreign influences. There's a whole political dimension. So it's elimination with all these political um, di dimensions on top. Because well, he may needs... I, may I come in, Bernard, can I come in and ask one question? Because we, he, he does sure. know a hell of a lot about the New Zealand experience with COVID. You know, certain people, possibly including my brother, would, would question whether New Zealand is in fact an authoritarian um, state that is the first mover to, you know, global... But, um, and Brett will ask me, Mr. Anderson will now ask me about my brother, but anyway, um, Rodney, what's going on in New Zealand with COVID? Because Mark Dalder wrote a very good piece of news room this week, essentially saying that uh, New Zealand is not taking, not, not taking Omicron seriously enough, that you know, there are 90 people a week dying in New Zealand or every fortnight or something like that. It is, it's, it's, it's a very uncomfortable climate in New Zealand, it seems to me. It's, um, you know, it's the cost. If we'd segued out of zero COVID earlier, last September, I mean, the fact we kept Auckland locked up, I think was a huge mistake. And, you know, I was in Singapore, where compliance is very good with mask use. Um, I'm up to Japan in a week or two. It's very similar. So I think we could have found a better balance, but we lost that opportunity to find the balance. Um, My impression on it is that um, the government, once it lost elimination and could see that its poll ratings were falling fast, um, and not just because of the elimination loss and the very long lockdowns in Auckland, but also because, um, you know, interest rates were rising, house prices were falling, consumer confidence was falling, and the government has, has pivoted away from, you know, taking a hard line on COVID and has looked at every opportunity to open things up. For example, this week, um, it's decided to remove, it's probably the right decision, to remove the um, pre-departure tests that are required for people to come into New Zealand. But there hasn't been uh, the, the, same public, the same public um, uh, publicity about mask wearing and hand washing and all of that stuff that you do get at a much higher level. You're right, in Singapore and, and Japan. Yeah. Uh, and so it was just that that kind of loss. And so now, you know, mask use is a hazard. But it's also, uh, you know, it's just one of those things now, like prior generations we have to live with, unfortunately. Just, just finally, um, Rodney, before we let you go, um, you came out with some really interesting comments last week about the, uh, the Reserve Bank's continuation of its funding for lending programme which has actually grown um, by seven or $8 billion to $12 billion since the end of the uh, quantitative easing pro program, which was in July last year, because the Reserve Bank says that they um, offered this facility for a couple of years to banks and they're gonna to stick to their word. Um, what do you think the Reserve Bank should do with that funding for lending program, stop. which as you point out- Stop, very simple, stop. 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 Stop right now. <laughs> yeah. Pull the handbrake, say the time has long passed. Why are we lending to Australian banks at the cash rate when the three-year rates are well above that? Why are we giving subsidized credit? We've kind of gone through a wormhole again to the 70s, and it's as if Muldoon is running our central bank. Um, <laughs> Jesus that's Christ. That's, that's a, I quite like that idea. <laughs> uh, I'm not, you know, Adrian has done some great things, but on, on this... I disagree. And I think directed lending has no place in the New Zealand system. Um, you know, I, I quite liked Adrian, you know, Adrian Orr's speech this week. It, it's interesting. It's good to talk about this. But this is an issue. Directed lending has no place. Um, and it needs to stop. It's, it's like 3.5% of GDP. It's subsidies for Australian banks. It just has to stop. And still, it's going mostly into mortgage lending for existing homes. Yeah, because... and it's a feat on interest rates. So let's just stop. I don't understand. So that would be my response. And also, the Reserve Bank is quite slowly, over a five-year period, 
dribbling the uh, bonds it bought back in 18 months um, back directly to the government, not through the markets. That, that's a harder question. I would have preferred, and I said this at the time, I would have preferred a policy in 21 where we were a bit slower to raise interest rates and they just cleared the decks of these bonds starting from May. You know, they could have started from their May statement, which was a good statement. I mean, they've kind of made the big cause right. They recognized the turn ahead of other central banks. They made that call in May 21. But they should have started selling down bonds straight away. Yeah. Uh, Rodney, fantastic to have you on. Thank you very much for uh, jumping in from um, somewhere in the South Island, I think. No, 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 I'm in Auckland. I'm in Are you in Auckland? Auckland? Okay. So we've got Auckland with Rodney. We've got somewhere on the way to Stansted with Peter Bale. And I'd like to welcome in Janine Granger. Thanks, from... Rodney. <laughs> Thank you. Great to be here. I'd like to welcome in uh, Janine Granger, who is the CEO of Easy Crypto, uh, which is New Zealand's um, biggest and uh, most active cryptocurrency exchange. Janine, great to see you. You're also in Auckland. I'm actually currently um, in the middle of near Waihi, so Central North Island. Ah, gotcha. All around the world, that's where we go every week. Uh, it has been a heck of a, a week, or really a fortnight in the cryptocurrency world. It's quite a month. Let's start with when Luna crashed. I mean, it's like the whole... My, my industry has been um, intensely interesting over the last couple of weeks, um, as have the financial markets more broadly, right? But we tend to uh, accentuate anything that's happening in the markets. Crypto does it stronger and better and deeper and usually more quickly, so. <laughs> and let's start with Luna, which really was the beginning of this round of, of problems. Um, uh, could you explain for a, a, a bit of a lay audience what Luna was and what happened there? Sure thing. So I'll start at sort of the, the the start at the very top of like what type of coin Luna was. Well, it was um, linked with UST, which is a stable coin. So anyone who knows anything about cryptocurrency knows that it's very volatile. And one of the common things that people say is, well, what you know, how how can this be used as a currency if it's volatile? So stable coins are a type of cryptocurrency that are designed to be one to one um, with a fiat currency like the US dollar. So one UST should always be worth one US dollar. There's lots of different ways to do stable coins. Some of them are backed one-to-one -one with actual assets in a bank that's audited. Um, USDC is a good example of that. And others uh, come up with sort of interesting ways to try to use supply and demand levers to ensure that they stay pegged. So UST um, was the stable coin that alongside Terra and that tried to stay pegged to the US dollar by using this kind of interesting algorithmic methodology and something that, you know, incentivized people to buy the coin if it dropped below and incentivized people to sell the coin if it went above one US dollar. Works great in theory, works great until you get very extreme market conditions. And then we sort of had this, you know, the there were a lot of commentators in the market who had called out in advance that, hey, this thing won't hold up um, and that it can be manipulated. If you have people with very large amounts of the token buying or selling it, that can manipulate the peg. And if you manipulate the peg far enough, you'll lose the confidence in the market, you'll get a run on the bank, everyone will sell the coin and all of the incentives in the world are not going to encourage people to buy something if they don't believe that it will, you know, that, that value will come back. So that's what happened with Luna and UST about, I think it was about two weeks ago now. So what was the, the uh, impact in New Zealand for um, your customers, for those uh, trading, those currencies, and how did it flow on to the rest of the crypto complex, if you like? Yeah, so it did result in, it, more broadly in the global environment, it resulted in a fair bit of liquidation of Bitcoin, which, um, you know, it's hard to know really what drives the crypto markets, but there's a theory, which I think is a pretty solid one, that the Luna incident drove quite a bit of liquidation of Bitcoin, which dropped the Bitcoin price down, which then sort of created further contagion, I guess, with, you know, people... Uh, losing confidence a bit in the crypto markets more broadly. Um, what we saw at Easy Crypto was quite interesting. We saw, you know, as the crypto markets dip, we saw a relatively stable um, number of or sort of proportion of buying and selling activity. So customers weren't rushing to sell. Those sort of buy and sell ratios stayed relatively stable, but we did see a big influx in volume. So a lot more people buying and a lot more selling, but not a big shift um, in one direction or the other. And uh, the big cahoot on the um, stablecoin block is Tether, which mm. um, had, a, had a bit of a wobble <laughs> when Luna <laughs> collapsed um, with its systems, yeah. but still seems to be holding up. I mean, how big a deal is Luna for your customers and, and, uh, and Easy Crypto in terms of how it connects up? 
So Luna wasn't a big deal at all. It was a relatively, you know, not niche, but it was definitely one of the more altcoins. You know, you sort of have Bitcoin and then you have alternative coins or altcoins, and Luna's quite far down that row. Tether, however, is a much bigger deal. Like a lot of the um, crypto markets run on Tether. Tether's a really interesting one that it was really one of the first stable coins out there or definitely the first one that gained a lot of um, traction in the markets. You know, I know when Tether first came out, I looked into it and I was like, I don't really want to link, use this coin because of its provenance and sort of what it's linked into. I actually wanted to have a Euro-backed stable coin, but they didn't really take off. Um, and there wasn't really good alternatives to Tether. So a lot of the trading infrastructure in the crypto ecosystem became built on Tether. We are seeing a move now with a lot more institutions and a lot more peers using USDC. So I think the industry as a whole is de-risking a bit from Tether. But if Tether did de-peg, um, which, you know, they say they are 100% asset backed, but they are not very clear about what those assets are and their auditors are not very um, transparent over that either. So there's definitely a question mark for me over quite how solid is Tether. Um, not financial advice, not making any predictions here, but um, it's a currency that I personally try to minimize exposure to. If it did go down, it would be a huge deal for the crypto industry because so many providers, um, so many institutions and so many trading pairs use Tether as part of how they operate. Yeah, Tether is I mean, not. Is, is, your, is your business is, is your business essentially sharesies for conspiracies, conspiracists, Jenny? <laughs> sure, Peter. Um, yeah, so we like a sharesies type model, right? Making it easy for sort of everyday people to get in and out of the crypto market. Um, we're not custodial at the moment, but that's something we're launching very soon. But it's really it's the it's the digital finance world, right? So I mean, I look at all of the traditional financial products, um, shares being one of them, and going, there is no way that in the future these products are not digital. Like it's quite, you know, I've worked inside banking before. It is entirely antiquated how the systems work. It's crazy that we still have this, you know, all our entire financial infrastructure globally is still built on like manual spreadsheets and paper files and things like that so um shares will, will go digital and then maybe you can buy them on easy crypto but in the meantime um we only touch digital products and so we deal with cryptocurrency at this stage and, and what's what sort of but what sort of people are, are investing in crypto at the moment particularly in the step i mean it was very interesting hearing rodney refer to the early 1970s paul volcker inflation and so on you know volatility is and real of real world events such as ukraine is what moves real financial markets. You know, we've had this strange sort of 10 year period when we've had super low interest rates and quantitative easing and so on. We're back to a much more normal sort of reality in a way where events are driving things. What's what's driving crypto right now? So from the sort of micro perspective, and if you look at New Zealand, for example, it's very much an everyday investor type activity. The FMA came out with some research this week, um, which which backed up research that we'd done a few months ago showing that more people in New Zealand hold cryptocurrency as an investment than hold property. Um, and it's not up there with shares yet. It's around, I think, 18% of New Zealanders um, hold cryptocurrency with a compared to around, I think it was 30 something percent with shares, but it's definitely gaining popularity as a retail investment tool. Um, in terms of what moves the markets though, cryptocurrency is not yet regulated enough for things like insider trading. So there's not enough ability for the markets to avoid being manipulated. And I think this is one of the problems that we have in the sector is that you have large um, institutional investors or large whale wallets that can move the markets. And in terms of cryptocurrency, um, how it responds to real world events, I think cryptocurrency is quite interesting, almost a canary in the coal mine, right? Like, as I sort of said, when I came on, whatever the markets are doing, cryptocurrency is doing it more so and it's doing it faster. And one of the reasons cryptocurrency responds so quickly is it's a 24 seven, very liquid market. So when the war in Ukraine started happening, like, you know, one of the first big, um, proof points around that was on a weekend and the crypto markets reacted instantly but of course the traditional financial markets can't do anything until you know what is it late monday new zealand time when the us wakes up so there is that ability for the markets to respond more quickly and we also see there are big shifts in the market driven by institutional investors because there's a lot of institutional money in crypto now and that money treats crypto as a risk asset which um you know, maybe that will change over time, but right now it's definitely seen as a risk asset. And so that sees the capital flight out of the market sort of at, at any initial signs of potential market shocks. So when you say that, you know, crypto is more popular than housing, that means that Bernard's going to have to move his entire agenda from housing into crypto. <laughs> I'm here to help him with that transition. It'll be fine. Just, you know, don't be scared. <laughs> 
Um, uh, speaking of the value of um, crypto, which uh, by my reckoning has dropped from over $2 trillion at the end of last year down to under $1 trillion US dollars at the moment, um, New Zealand's um, housing market's about $1.8 trillion New Zealand dollars, so around about one point. So at the moment, the New Zealand housing market's worth slightly more than the in entire crypto. So if I get everyone at crypto together, we could try to buy in New Zealand, is what you're saying? Oh, yeah, yeah, the whole, the whole housing market. Yeah, no, that would be good. Um, could you tell us, you mentioned uh, earlier one particular stable coin that I hadn't heard of that maybe is on the way up, uh, UST. DC or um, oh, USDC. Sorry, uh, USDC. Could you tell us about that? So I, I wouldn't say it's on the way up in terms of value because that would defy being a stable coin. But um, USDC is um, the company behind. It's called Circle. They are a listed um, company. They have you know they're well audited. They've got sort of dollar for dollar backing of um, US dollars in their in their accounts. So for me, you know that is my preferred stable coin that I use for trading infrastructure. But um, stable coins is an area where I think we're going to be seeing more regulation come in, particularly off the back of what's happened with UST. Um, but it's an area that personally I'd love to see regulation accommodate both, you know, really solid stable coins, the stuff that you give, say, a triple A rating to where it's, you know, dollars in the bank account, but also enable innovation for more um, interesting ways of doing stable coins. I don't think the, you know, I wouldn't call algorithmic backed stable coins dead yet. I think that's a really interesting innovation and with the right math and the right incentives and sort of real world stress testing, they should be able to work. But I'd love to see more transparency for retail customers of, you know, similar to those bond rating rights where you can say this is a triple A stable coin or this is a B plus stable coin, buy it at your own risk. So that's where I hope we'll, we'll be heading. Now, one of the um, interesting pieces of fallout, I suppose, for the from the latest drama with crypto is that the central banks are certainly trying to accelerate their moves to create their own central bank digital currencies. Because if there's any one institution able to create their own stable coin, I suppose you could call it a digital stable coin of their own, it would be one of the central banks. There's been various trials. Do you think that, uh, you know, there's a bit of a race on here between the... Um, the rebel, the rebels and the state in terms of central bank digital currencies. Um, how's it going on the central bank digital currency side? Because in theory, for someone like you, you could be, you know, um, uh, technology neutral. You could, you could have them all, couldn't you? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, so I think, you know, well over 120 different countries are um, looking or experimenting with stable coins at the moment. New Zealand's, um, the reserve, Bank NZ has a industry group that we're a part of, which is looking at stablecoin or sorry, central bank digital currency development. Um, you probably would have seen the consultation paper that came out last year, which um, I thought was really good. Great of the RBNZ to be looking at this. Um, some really good principles that they put in there in terms of, you know, privacy aspects, interoperability, innovation. Um, they possibly missed the mark a little bit with their comms on that because I saw a lot of people were thinking that this thing was already live and we're you know, railing against this move by the government to uh, centralize their cash, which hadn't actually happened. It was just a, let's talk about this. Um, but I think it's a no brainer, right? Like, as I talked about before, financial products and services will be going digital. Our lives are increasingly digitized. It makes no sense that these things are stuck back in sort of paper-based systems. Um, central bank digital currencies are such an obvious tool as part of that. And I think the big questions will be around interoperability, like how these things work between different countries. Can we ensure that whatever underlying infrastructure they're built on, you can sort of move seamlessly between them. Um, and also around innovation. And this is the piece where I think, I don't think it will be a either or, it's not gonna be um, decentralized cryptocurrencies or centralized government currencies. Both of them will exist because they'll fulfill different functions and you just won't get the innovation out of the central currencies, but that's not what they're there for. They're there to be a, a stable medium of exchange. Potentially you might see the governments doing things like automating tax payments on transactions or you know that kind of like stuff that digital transfers of value could enable but absolutely i believe we'll still have the private sector doing awesome innovative stuff at the fringes and um you know being probably decades ahead of where the, the government coins are at now the big news this week in the crypto world was celsius which is the um crypto lender uh, uh as i understand it, in the united states that was operating as um uh, it would take in someone's Bitcoin and then you could lend out your Bitcoin and get a get a high interest rate on it. 
often those bitcoins will be used to fund other uh, crypto um, businesses. Could you tell us about, you know, whether Celsius was involved here in New Zealand, whether any New Zealand investors were lending their, their cryptocurrencies into Celsius and if there's been any fallout here? Yeah, um, I do know a fair few of our customers were using um, Celsius and, um, you know, fun fact for people who might not be aware is everything on the blockchain is transparent. So we can see how many of our customers are sending funds to say Binance, to Celsius, to different providers. So I could have pulled that stat out, but unfortunately I didn't think to do it before this call. But um, definitely there were a number of our customers that used Celsius and they had a relatively active community here in New Zealand. This We're still sort of trying to understand exactly what's happened there. Um, a lot of the hypothesis is that Celsius had quite a large amount of um, funds locked up in Ethereum, which was, there's a, there's a sticking, um, uh, in the lead up to Ethereum's new blockchain coming out, they were running these um, sort of locked in staking pools where you'd basically put in your Ethereum and it's locked up until that merge happens. Um, the timeline for that's not yet set. So for a company like Celsius to have put what seems like a relatively significant amount of funds in a locked up um, staking pool, which you can't necessarily take them out from, that's created liquidity problems for them. You'd think that they would be able to lend or to borrow against, you know, from a bigger player in the market against those assets, um, if those assets covered all of the reserves. There's possibly also some question marks around, have they lost through other things like, for example, UST, the terror debacle? Um, were there losses from hacks? I know Celsius had been through a number of hacks and, you know, this sounds probably worse than it is. It's not uncommon for crypto companies to have hacks, but if they manage their wallets well, they should be small, but there are questions as to how much Celsius had lost through hacks. And again, blockchain being very transparent, a lot of the community can do the digging and get sort of details on, on what's happened much more so than you could with traditional finance. But more broadly, it sort of raises the question again to go back to regulation of if you have retail investors putting funds in with a centralized service, what are the protections for those investors? How well is that centralized service um, governed, how transparent are they? Are there the regulatory protections that a retail investor would, you know, should be able to expect from a financial service provider? And I expect we'll see again more regulation probably off the back of um, the meltdown of Celsius as well. And what about in New Zealand? How does the FMA and the um, uh, Reserve Bank and other regulators, how are they seeing crypto? Are they looking to get involved? Because at the moment it's it's fairly fairly unregulated. Well, it isn't and isn't. So I think the regulation is, um, New Zealand's got some really good legislation in that it's relatively, um, what's the word for it? Like, it's not prescriptive, it's more principles based. So, you know, my business from day one, we were captured by things like the anti-money laundering regulation, because it doesn't say if you are crypto, you should be, you know, comply with this. It says if you offer a service that looks like this, then you should do that. So that's a really good way to do regulation where it can sort of flex with innovation and, you know, capture the right bucket of activities without having to specify them. So New Zealand has um, anti-money laundering legislation that applies to cryptocurrency. It has, you know, all of your Fair Trading Act consumer guarantees. In terms of Financial Market Conduct Act, that's where things are a bit lighter because we aren't seen as, um, we technically don't sell any financial products or services. I think most people would look at crypto though and be like, you know, it looks like a financial product, it smells like one. So there probably is more of an expectation from a retail consumer point of view that these things would have some of those, those protections. Um, but we are still required to do things like register as financial services providers. And so for anyone in New Zealand buying and selling cryptocurrency, and I think that, you know, the FMA says this on their website as well, is use a New Zealand registered provider because you do have better protections. But when things, you know, the stuff is all digital, funds can flow freely between any, you know, crypto providers and, you know, people can buy in New Zealand and then take it offshore to an entity like Celsius. And that's where there, you know, globally is probably the safety net of regulation that would be ideally in, in this space. And that's where I think it's a bit more buyer beware, do your own research and definitely don't put more than you're able to lose, particularly with any one provider. Uh, Janine, just to finish off, you've got your finger on the pulse of the culture of uh, the crypto markets in New Zealand. For a long time, there was um, a view that central banks were printing money hand over fist and were effectively devaluing fiat currencies and the cryptocurrencies were going to be the stable ones in the end that had some real value. Now the central banks have stopped printing money and are putting up interest rates. Is one of the sort of central reasons for crypto sort of uh, dribbling away a bit as the central banks start being um, proper central, central banks? 
Yeah, I, I think this is probably something that needs more time and this market needs to mature for it to fulfill that role. So I'll, I'll put my hand up and say, I personally am really surprised that um, Bitcoin in particular hasn't yet shown that hedge against inflation role in the market. So, you know, for anyone who's not aware, obviously, you know, quantitative easing creates a lot of inflation in, in fiat currencies. Bitcoin, um, conversely, there are only ever going to be 21 million Bitcoin. They kind of drip feed into the market at a set rate. And then once they're all issued, they're all issued and we're not far off that. And so there's this kind of concept that, well, Bitcoin is not an inflationary currency. So compared to inflationary fiat currencies, it should increase in value. We haven't seen that yet, but I believe you know, my view on that is that we haven't seen that because of the institutional investment in cryptocurrency is so significant and can move the market so much that all you need is, you know, a bit of de-risking from a few institutional investors who need to rebalance their portfolios and that drops the price significantly. So in my view, the market is not acting rationally. Um, cryptocurrency should hold value better against fiat currency because of that uh, non-inflationary aspect, but I think we need the markets to mature more first. And you mentioned the... the we, we like segues on this show. And you know, I, you know, whenever anybody talks about fiat currencies, which of course is um, talking about a currency that is, is valued because of fiat, because of the statement, I always think of a car company as well. And the, there's something opposite here, which is that um, Americans often say that fiat stands for fix it again, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and and also just just finally, uh, Janine, on the um, the the culture of uh, crypto you had a lot of you know, relatively young new um retail investors as we call them i suppose you could say who who believed um in the crypto revolution and had this view that you held on to them for dear life that um that aim was the hodlers as they call them and and whenever the prices fell it was a chance to buy the effing dip as they say, BTFD. There's some great T-shirts that say HODL and BTFD. Um, are you seeing that sort of activity, that sort of difference in tone between retail and institutional? Yeah, so we are seeing a lot of um, buy action from the retail investors as prices drop. Um, so definitely some sell as well, but it does seem to like as prices dip, we get this sort of a bit of a greater weighting towards buy volume, at least that's what we've saw this week, um, particularly in the last day or so. Um, it is a challenging one in terms of that difference between institutional and retail because I think, you know, and there's a lot of, again, blockchain is amazing how much insight you can get over what's happening in the market. And so there's Glassdoor, sorry, Glassnode is a really good company that does a lot of analysis based on size of holdings and wallet, whether those wallets are buying or selling, how they're timing their buyers and sales and whether or not they're making or losing money on that. And you do see like a lot of, um, a lot of the smaller investors are selling at inopportune times at the moment, which is, you know, not like anyone can predict the market, but it does show more of that reactionary thing, whereas you have um, the larger wallets are often making better time decisions. Um, we are, again, like I said, in a market that has, you know, probably not enough regulation to stop, sort of stop people being able to um, swing prices and then profit off that. And that's where the, the smaller guys, the retail investors definitely would be missing out. Janine, one of our one of our listeners um, is pointing out that you you speak relatively positively about regulation, but mm. one of the points of crypto is that it's kind of free of regulation in a sense. Yeah. Uh, solves that solves that conundrum, and is, isn't it possible that if if your exchange is well regulated, that that somebody else just bypasses it with another exchange that isn't? Yeah, regulation is a really interesting one. Like I, I have a very split view on this. One is I am very pro um, financial autonomy, privacy, decentralization, and all of the things that um, blockchain enables. I think that's very, very important, particularly as we move to a more centralized um, system in terms of things like digital identity and you know what you see in China with the government being able to turn on and off your ability to access services. Um, creating more centralized currency brings a lot of risk of that. So pro pro um, deregulated currencies and sort of blockchain freedom very very strongly but also i see the the pointy end of what happens to retail investors when they engage in a product that they don't understand where they don't you know if they don't have the protections that they should and so from that point of view i think cryptocurrencies shouldn't be regulated and to be honest you can't that is the point of a cryptocurrency is like you know the eu tried to um, pass some regulation around bitcoin needs to use x amount of um you know environmentally you know basically upgrade the environmental friendliness of bitcoin it's like you can't regulate against bitcoin however you can regulate market participants so cryptocurrencies no don't regulate them you can't 
part, market participants, yes, regulate them because they are the people who, at the end of the day, the retail investor and the end user is engaging with. And so, for example, for me at Easy Crypto, I should be held up to certain standards. We should have certain, you know, requirements that we need to meet to be able to service retail individuals. But if I want to go off and create a coin, you know, that's a free market, knock yourself out. You're not planning to create a coin, are you? No. <laughs> you probably got enough on your hands. Hey, it's Janine. Thank you very much for um, for joining us here tonight. Um, uh, no doubt there'll be plenty more action in the crypto markets in the weeks to come. Uh, I'll let you I'd like to a quiet week or two if I, if we can manage it. But yeah, absolutely. Thank, thank you so much, uh, Janine Granger. There, the CEO of Easy Crypto. Wonderful to see you. Now, Peter, we, we wanted to um, uh, bid adieu to you as well before you jump on your plane to um, uh, somewhere Lisbon. very hot. I'm, I'm going to I'm going to Lisbon, which is remarkably like Wellington, but it has an actually useful cable car and 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 um, and sewage that doesn't run down the streets. It's very ah, similar. yes, and about forty degrees Celsius extra heat. Well, Seville was forty-eight degrees the other day, which is in Spain, of course. You know, Lisbon's on the coast, so it's, it won't won't be too bad. But I I, I do have a um, a lunch arranged with a friend of ours, yours and mine, uh, where I hope to drink some vino verde and possibly have some grilled sardines. Uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a little known restaurant that my Portuguese friend said is only frequented by politicians, gangsters, and journalists. So ah. it sounds like our kind of, it sounds like our kind of place. Speaking, speaking of gangsters and politicians, Bernard, I, just thought, I, I don't really have a skateboarding dog, but you, you might have seen that um, uh, Boris Johnson's ethics advisor, which is, it's, it's definitely is an oxymoron, um, the moron and the oxymoron resigned yesterday. It's the second second uh, ethics advisor to quit within two years. Um, and, and he said that Boris had, had com was compelling him to do odious things. Uh, and, um, you know, it's just an extraordinary disaster. So the great news is that Boris Johnson would now appear to be um, deciding to work without an ethics advisor at all. And since I'm in Essex, I can do the joke that, um, you know, Bo Boris thinks that e e ethics is a, is a, is a, is a, uh, a county northeast of London. <laughs> Well, uh, good fun. Um, oh, and just just one thing: that your yeah. um, your chats around Russian history and um, Putin's people popular with our audience. So um, next week we can dive into that a bit more. And um, I, I can uh, give everybody a reading list next week if they'd like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, um, and uh, look for the the, the latest um, good books that are coming out. My, my final um, skateboarding dog is uh, that Anna Delvey, um, did you remember the, this uh, uh, Russian, German-raised socialite uh, who went to New oh, York yes. Yes, and managed, yeah. managed to um, rip off a whole bunch of uh, rather naive, <laughs> very rich people. And Actually, it was would be a bloody good name for a bit for a bit for a or a cryptocurrency, wouldn't I? <laughs> I'm just going to go and buy. I'm just going to go and buy some gullible. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Uh, it's, someone's going to do it. You know, I mean, there was yeah. that whole Dogecoin. Brent Tamahori will go and do it now. Yeah, <laughs> Brent, Brent, um, yeah. So there was the Dogecoin thing, which was actually a joke, but Elon Musk turned it into a real thing by joking about it. Um, mm -hmm. So you know, we've jumped to the shark uh, there. But another jumping the shark moment is that. Um, Anna Delvey, and the reason I mention Anna Delvey is because um, Finding Anna is one of the best um, Netflix series I've seen in the last year or two. It's a cracking yarn uh, put together by um, the When do you super... have time to do all this when you're not trading cryptocurrency and buying more houses, Bernard? <laughs> well, you've you got to have some, have some fun sometime, you know. When, um, uh, so that's, that's, that's what I do, and it's a very good series. But anyway... The reason I'm talking about her now is that this week she has just launched her own NFT uh, called, um, and she's going to call it um, the Anna Access Card. Um, yeah. And it's an NFT that she's put together with uh, Johnny Ryan. And um, she says that she wants to reinvent uh, the world of NFT and to get away from her scammer persona. Uh, well, I, I think NFT. Bernard, we need to get a we need a, a Kaka NFT, and you need to do it before Zealandia does. Ah, yes. Well, maybe there's a partnership thing we can do. 
that would yeah. be that would be excellent. Um, I could sell off sell off little bits of Zealandia. You know, maybe, little maybe plots you should of land. Be, maybe you should do the kaka from from Zealandia one day. The kaka from Karori uh, with real good kaka. Good in the good idea. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, yeah, we're innovating just on the fly here. On the fly, as as we fly. Yeah. No, this is an excellent idea because there's one part of Zealandia where the kaka come down to land and have something to eat. So that's my dream is to do an episode of The Who within the background, the kaka squawking and um, burbling away. That would be a lot of fun, particularly in the summer. When you're back in Wellington, Peter, that's what we're going to do on a Friday afternoon is a hoon from oh, Zealandia. We could, we, could have, we could have sardines and vino verde in Wellington. Pretend we're in Portugal. Ah. Now, can I just point out also, people might like to know, that this is Stansted Airport, which was the first airport done by the architect Norman Foster. And you can see that it was the template, really, for all subsequent airport, airports oh. that he's done, including the Beijing airport. So it's always been a rather amazing, very beautifully architected little airport. And it's, but it's main not base very for Ryanair. But it's not very popular, is it? Because it's, it's, it's this, sort of... It is this morning. These buggers asked me to get here three hours before my flight. And I'm here only, only two hours before my flight, so I better get on. Thank oh, you. Yeah. Hey, Peter, wonderful to see you. Bye. Have Thank a you very much for coming. safe trip, and we'll catch you all later. Um, this has been the Weekly Home. I'm Bernard Hickey. You've been with uh, Peter Bale. Ka kite and I'll have a great weekend, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you.